0: I invite you to turn in your Bible, in the New Testament, to the letter penned by the Apostle Paul to the younger pastor named Titus, to Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3. As Pastor Kohler mentioned last Sunday, there's no doubt that things are rapidly changing in the culture, uh, in our country, and in the world at large. Someone on the news this past week noted the effect that social media and the connectivity that we have through the internet and technology, how those things have, have had such an effect on the, on the pace at which things uh, are changing in really any particular society, how changes that once may have taken 18 months to occur are now taking 18 weeks and in some cases sometimes only 18 days. More and more, we are hearing about and or seeing uh, the arrows fly as we get closer and closer to our, our own national election in November. We also sense the increasing tension when it comes to race relations in our land. We sense the international unrest as terrorism abounds and nations struggle to protect their citizens, especially when their leaders seem so dedicated to first protecting their own agendas and their positions of power. Here we are as followers of Jesus Christ trying to think through all of these issues with biblical discernment. Knowing that we are in somewhat of a predicament because we live in the world, but we are not of this world we are not of this world, Jesus said in John chapter 17, not of the world, but chosen by Christ out of the world, but we're still in it. In fact, we have been sent into the world as ministers for the sake of Christ and of the gospel, and for that reason, we are for the most part hated by the world which is to be expected because the world hated Christ first, Jesus told his disciples in John 10. Well, this predicament is exactly what Titus 3 is all about. It's about Christian living in this world. It's about our engagement with the world and our obligation in relation to the world, to its unbelieving inhabitants and its political and societal structures, which are things that require wisdom, things that require courage and grace, because this world that we have been commanded by Christ to reach with the gospel, a task, by the way, that requires interaction, is one whose systems and citizens are generally opposed to the exclusive claims of Christianity. Now, when we get to this point in Paul's letter to Titus, Paul turns a corner, in chapter 2, he's been talking about gospel implications and giving instruction to the church about relationships in the church, within the church and among believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. But in chapter 3, he continues to stress gospel implications, but begins giving instruction to the church, uh, not so much regarding the relationships within, but really dealing with those relationships that we have outside the church. How are we supposed to think about the lost? How are we supposed to relate to those in the world who don't know Christ? And how can we cultivate a heart for the lost? Paul tells his son in the faith, Titus, that that he is going to have to consistently remind the church of the answers to these questions and that he's going to have to confidently instruct the church in these matters. So what does he say? What are the instructions for this pastor and for the people that he was called to shepherd? Titus chapter 3 verse 1, reading from the English Standard Version, Paul writes, "...remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities." To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In light of this passage, let me ask you a question. What is your relationship to those outside the church of Jesus Christ? What is your posture towards your lost neighbors or lost relatives? Isn't it true that it's easy for us to get this wrong? Uh, it's quite easy to adopt the wrong attitudes and the wrong posture towards unbelievers. Some of you will struggle with indifference. You have prayed for for so long for some individuals in your life that you really have just become uncaring. You don't care anymore. You don't even think about it. And there's no sense of urgency. Some of you will struggle with defensiveness, with fear and insecurity, determined to keep the world and all of its evil at bay. So there's no sense of compassionate evangelism in your life. There's only a posture that says that I must protect myself and my household from the wickedness in the world at all costs. So you'll find yourself insulated by the church and with little interaction with the unbelieving world. Others of you will struggle with impatience, disgust, anger, anger with the evil world out there. Certainly you shouldn't approve of evil, but, but here the concern for God's glory has been replaced by the concern that you have personally been insulted. And some of you will struggle with a different kind of anger, not so much a disgust of, of their vileness, but anger or hurt towards those who may persecute you or wrong you as unbelievers. In these cases, we sometimes take a softer defense, saying, you you hurt me or, or you could hurt me, and so we back away and disengage. And there are others, other ways to get it wrong. But this passage tells us how to get it right. Here we have an apostle saying to a young pastor, teach the church this. Remind them of this. Instruct them in these things. And keep doing it because they will struggle to consistently apply and maintain the right kind of attitude and posture. So think about this What is your general MO or your posture or your demeanor? towards the lost. And with that in your mind, let's consider the counsel that Paul gives and that is meant to help us to cultivate a heart for the lost. We'll do this by breaking this into two major headings, spiritual reminders and spiritual reasons. First, spiritual reminders. Spiritual reminders. In verse 1, Paul tells Titus to remind them Uh, Literally, Titus, keep reminding them, keep putting them under remembrance, or keep putting them under the weight of this reminder. This is what pastors and teachers do. This is what they do once they, as, as John Stott has stated, once they have been delivered from the unhealthy lust for originality. Right? They take pains. This is what pastors and teachers do and preachers do. They take pains to remind people of old truths. And why must pastors and teachers do this? Well, they have to do it. We have to do it. We need it in our lives because we're all a forgetful people. Right? This was a problem for Israel. This was a problem. You see it in even the lives of of the disciples that followed Christ. And so it just makes sense that this would also be something that still plagues our lives in the church today. So what is it that we are to be continually reminded to do? Well, first, he says, we are to remember to be submissive to governing authorities. We're to remember to be submissive to governing authorities. He says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Nothing about our relationship with the kingdom of God allows us a free pass to disregard and disobey the kingdom of man with one glaring exception, of course, and that is when their laws cross God's law. But it, Paul says here, remind them to be submissive. It's the idea of lining yourself up under the authority of, of others, as imperfect as those authorities may be at times. It's a willing demeanor. Uh, it's a concept that is set in contrast to the spirit of rebellion that is so prevalent in the culture. In fact, even in not just our culture, but even in the culture to which uh, Titus, the culture in which Titus himself was even ministering. Earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul emphasized the need for an elder uh, in, in the church, any elder in the church with children under his care, to have children who are faithful and not open to the charge, and he mentions two things, of debauchery and Insubordination. Then, talking about opposition to the gospel within the church, Paul wrote in chapter 1, later in verse 10, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So, uh, this in chapter 3, verse 1, is the exact opposite of the tone of a rebellious, wayward child or a rebel within the church who is stirring up trouble. And disturbing whole households, the apostle Paul tells Titus that he is to remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, even even ungodly authority? I mean, even even those, even those governing authorities that make and pass laws that don't honor life or that defy God's definition of marriage, yes. Because their authority is derived from God. That is to say, they didn't get there on their own. Or we might say this way, they didn't get themselves elected. God appoints rulers. Whether they understand it or not. Whether they recognize it or not. They are God's rulers. That is even true of authorities in the spiritual realm. Demons. Uh, Satan himself who have a a certain amount of delegated authority. You could say, the devil is God's devil. The the president is God's president. The governor is God's governor. The city council member is God's city council member. It has nothing to do with whether or not they see themselves in this way or carry out their duties in a God-pleasing and God-honoring manner. Now, these two terms in verse 1 for rulers and authorities are also used together in Romans chapter 13, a text that similarly speaks to how believers should respond to and relate to their civil authorities. Paul says this over in Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, let every, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, be submissive for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all, he says, what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There's a tendency within evangelicalism and often associated with right-wing conservative, conservative politics, a tendency to somehow think that this demeanor of subjection and honor that should, be, that, that, that should be given to God-ordained authority, that somehow we don't have to do that if the one in authority is not a professing believer. This passage reminds us that there are even certain kinds of humor that are off-limits. Certain snide remarks about political leaders that are off-limits. Now, having said that, we are blessed to live in a time and in a society where an appropriate level of dissent is encouraged uh, and, and allowed. So the scriptures are not telling you to affirm that which is evil and to call it good, but rather to ultimately recognize that our rulers have been placed there by God himself. And that should have a curbing effect on a certain kind of cynicism and bitterness towards them even when they are performing gross evil in the name of government. We must learn to honor those in authority even if we do not find them agreeable. Brian Chapel comments, he says, quote, we must submit to the authority God places in our lives even if that authority rebukes us. If Christians routinely operate in the mode of respecting only the authority with which they agree or that does not trouble them, then the ministers of the gospel, who must correct, rebuke, and exhort, will soon have no authority. So, we are to remember, to remember to be submissive to governing authorities. And we are to remember to be obedient to governing authorities. So you can think of it this way. Submission is sort of the demeanor on the inside. Obedience is what you do on the outside. This word for obedience is a word that is used only here by the Apostle Paul, but it's used by Luke in three places, including Acts chapter 5, where we learn several things. First, we learn that the term for obedience in Titus is used by Luke to describe a believer's obedience to God. So, so what we're saying is that there's a, from, a, from a quality standpoint, there's really no difference. The, the, the kind or the quality of obedience that we're to render to earthly authorities really is the same kind that we ought to be offering to the Lord himself. Second, we learn that at times obedience to earthly governing authorities and obedience to God will not be possible. You remember in Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin come, they they give, says, strict orders to the apostles to stop preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter and the apostles' disciples respond, we must obey God rather than men. And we learn from what Paul tells Titus in chapter 3, verse 1, that to live in submission to governing authorities implies that we will obey those authorities. John MacArthur, speaking about this whole issue of the Christians' engagement with the culture and interaction with the government, had this to say. He says, We must reject sin and never compromise God's standards of righteousness. But we, we also must never engage in defamation and, de- and denigration of the lost sinners who make up our corrupt culture. When Christians become political, sinners become the enemy instead of the mission field. No Christian can help wishing that the moral standards of society were better. We do grieve over the rampant lewdness, indecency, deceitfulness, vulgarity, unchastity, extreme self-indulgence, and every other form of depravity that is corroding our society. But as noble as the desire to reform culture may be, God does not call the church to impact society by promoting, by promoting laws and judicial decisions that support biblical standards of behavior. The single divine calling of the church is to bring sinful people to salvation through Christ. If we do not lead the lost to salvation, nothing else we do for them, no matter how beneficial at the time, is of any eternal consequence." Whether a person is an atheist or a theist, a hooligan or a model citizen, a criminal or a policeman, a sexual pervert or a paragon of virtue, a brutal tyrant or a gracious benefactor, if he does not have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ, his destiny is hell. Whether he is a militant pro-abortionist or a militant anti-abortionist, if he is not saved, he will spend eternity apart from God. It makes no difference whether a person goes to hell as a policeman, a junkie, or a judge. The end is the same. When the church adopts a moralizing approach, its energy and resources are diverted and evangelism suffers. When Christians become hostile to government and to society in general, they almost inevitably become hostile to the unsaved leaders of that government and the unsaved citizens who live in that society. It's well said. So we submit to governing authorities and we obey our governing authorities... We participate in this level of the social structure as far as possible according to the rules and the guidelines of society. We do what the system requires because subjection to the state, that is adherence to and recognition of this institution, means obeying the rules. And not just obeying the rules, but actively expressing our Christian life by doing good. Which is the third thing that we are to remember if we're going to cultivate a heart for unbelievers. We are to remember, he says, to be ready for every good work, for every good deed. Which is quite a convicting little phrase. It's that preparedness. Not mere willingness to do a good deed. Not just if a, if a good deed happens to jump in front of you. But looking for the opportunity. It refers to a thoughtful mental rehearsal and preparation. Like preparing a meal, ladies, you think about having a, a group of people over to your house for supper, and so you sit there at, at night, and, and, you, and you're, all these things are going through your mind. You're thinking about uh, what you're going to fix, right? And then you're thinking about, the, from that, you're going to the grocery list, right? You're beginning to think, okay, I, do we have this? Do we have that? What are we going to need? What am I going to go and buy at the store tomorrow? How am I best going to serve this to my guests? All of those things, that's preparation. That's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about, being prepared, thinking ahead of time about good deeds. Now think about your relationship with unbelievers. Paul asks, how will you decorate your doctrine? How will you accessorize your doctrinal statement with your good deeds in life? Paul has already talked in this letter about the importance of doing good deeds. He did, that, he did that back in chapter 2, verse 7. And then he says, not just to do them, but he adds in chapter 2, verse 14, that we're to be zealous, we're to be enthusiastic, we're to be intense about doing them. And now, he says, we're to be prepared for them, prepared for them ahead of time. Do you think about that? Do you think ahead of time about the things that you could do to be a blessing to your unbelieving neighbors and relatives? Do you think ahead of time about people who you could reach? Do you think ahead of time about how to transition a conversation from sports and current events to the truths of the gospel? Paul says we're to be reminded of this. We're not just called to do good deeds as followers of Christ. We're not just called to be excited and enthusiastic about those things. We're called to sit back and to think about what we can do next, to get ahead of this, to prepare our hearts for this. Be ready for every good deed. Fourth, we are to remember to malign no one. To malign no one. He says to speak evil. It's the word uh, blasphemeo or we get our term blasphemy, to speak evil of no one. The point Paul is making here is that as a Christian, you will be, mal- you will be maligned by the unbelieving world. You can read all about that in the, the, the book of First Peter. The world will speak evil of you. The world will heap abuse on you. The world will insult and deride you. They did this to Christ. They did this to the Apostle Paul. You could see that in Acts chapter chapter 13, Acts chapter 18. People will do this to you. They will slander you. They will treat you with contempt. And when they do, Paul says, do not do this in return. Rather... He says over in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless, and uses a term where we get our, 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 our term in the English, uh, eulogize, a eulogy. To bless, it means to speak well of. This is what people do at funerals. When they eulogize someone, they forget all the bad, right? They don't talk about all the bad stuff at the funeral that this person did for 60 years. They talk about, even if there's just a handful, right, of good, virtuous things, they talk about those things. That's what Paul says we're to do when we're talking about our enemies, Enemies of the gospel. We're to bless them. We're to speak well of them. We're to bless those who persecute you. Bless, he says, and do not curse. Again, we need this reminder because we easily slip back into patterns of fighting fire with fire. Paul then moves from the believer's speech to his conduct, together sort of summarizing the totality of our lives. He says that as a Christian, I am to be known as a peacemaker, a peacemaker. We are to remember to be peaceable, to abstain from fighting, to not be ready to fight, to not be argumentative, we might say. People tend to fall into one of two groups, right? There are those who are peace-loving, there are those who are are peacemaking, and sometimes even peace-faking and then we have those on the other side, those, those who would drive across town to pick a fight. In fact, if they heard there was a fight across town, they would drive across town just to watch it, right? To observe it. Paul says, don't always assume that you're right. Humble people are people that are quick to doubt themselves. Proud people are quick to trust themselves and in a sense th- this is an indirect call to humility to be peaceable christians are to be uncontentious and peaceable again back in back to romans chapter 12 verse For by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're not talking about passivity. We are talking about an active, conscious mode of response that allows a person to resist taking a violent course in diff- difficult and tense situations, often sacrificially, In order to save relationships. Paul says, be friendly and peaceable toward the lost. Rather than quarrelsome and belligerent. Sixth, we are to remember to be gentle. To be gentle, seemly, equitable, yielding, moderate, fair, forbearing. To be reasonable over things. It's been referred to as sweet reasonableness. One commentator says that this term denotes a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice, trusting God in spite of it all. This is about being able to absorb wrong committed against you. It's also about quieting your personal concerns and making room for the concern of others. It's about reasoned forbearance in every aspect of life. It's about putting the concerns of others ahead of your own. And finally, we are to remember to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The, in a, the New American Standard says this, showing every consideration for all men you couldn't really get any more inclusive than that. In every relationship, Paul says, with every person, show consideration. Demonstrate by words and actions patience and a humble attitude that bears up under offense without a move toward revenge. And do it for all men. Because Christian gentleness does not discriminate. You don't turn it on and then turn it off. The scriptures say over and over again, put on gentleness, put on Christ, put on this way of thinking and behaving. But it never tells you to put off humility and gentleness. It says put it on and keep putting it on because the gravitational pull of the flesh and sin in your life, that that, that pull of self, keeps trying to pull it off, to disrobe you, if you will, of gentleness. Think about the unbelievers in your life. There are some that you may have a tremendous amount of compassion for. Then there are those who sort of irritate you. And then there are those that you would say of, I I just absolutely have a hard time loving them. This is God's instruction for your relationship with unbelievers of every stripe and kind we are to be submissive, obedient, cooperative, conciliatory, courteous, humble, and gentle. This is the way to demonstrate the gracious power of God to transform sinners and to make them like himself. So do you want to make an impact on those in your life who are lost without the Lord? Stop harassing them. Stop getting frustrated with them. Stop condemning them. Stop stirring up controversy everywhere that you go. Stop justifying your insubordinate attitude and start treating them with compassion and mercy and gentleness. Now, what is the theological justification for this instruction that Paul gives Titus? Well, this is where Paul goes in the verses that follow. He gives us spiritual reasons, spiritual reasons for us to live this way. So it's, it's not just simple obedience. I mean, that would be okay. I mean, Paul could just say, this is the way you're supposed to live, now do it. <laughs> and there are other places where you sort of get that tone, right? Where it's just, you, you are the servant of the Lord, he is your master, you just do what he says. That's certainly true. But this isn't just simple obedience. This is, if you will, an informed obedience. Paul's telling you what to do. He's giving you God-given responsibilities, but he wants you to know why, he wants to supply, in this case, the reasons for living this way. So why do these things? Well, we do them for reasons that really fall, at least in this text, into two categories. First, he says that we are to live this way because of who you were without the gospel. Because of who you were without The gospel, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not only do we have a tendency to forget how to treat unbelievers, we all have a tendency to forget that we were like a brand snatched out of the fire. It's morally reprehensible that we should ever have to be reminded what the Bible says was true about us before Christ and what we deserved. Children of disobedience. Storing up a savings account for wrath. Rather, rather than, than resent and slander unbelievers, government leaders are politicians, educators, the media, those in Hollywood, or even those in our families or neighborhoods or, or at our jobs, Paul says we should remember that we were once like those that we now are inclined to defame and condemn. Not that we personally committed or advocated every sin and every form of wickedness that they have, but that we were all at one time enemies of God. Our continuous habit of life was more similar than we are usually willing to admit. More similar to theirs. And every one of us was in need of rescue. So Paul says... In order for us as believers to give a godly testimony in a pagan culture, we must remember the kind of behavior that is to be expected from the ungodly. And we must remember that in our former condition, we were just like the unbelievers among whom we now live and witness and by whom we are so often agitated. So what does Paul say about our lives before Christ, B.C.? How does he describe the motion picture of our lives before we came to know and believe the truth? He says, verse 3 we were once foolish, without thought or understanding, completely foggy, totally clueless, ignorant, but culpably so. Even though we may have thought that we were so scientific and so brilliant and so sophisticated, and so culturally advanced, but Paul says, without God, we were all fools. Foolish, and skipping our way to hell, and not even having enough sense to be afraid. Next, he says, we were once disobedient. She just just, just simply means to, to not be compliant. Not willing to be brought under the authority of another, whether that's God or one of the authorities that God has instituted. Having the desire to be autonomous, self-ruled, self-governing, self-determining, independent, sovereign, free, unmonitored. So when you see unbelievers being disobedient, you should think, that is the way that I used to be and to act and sometimes still do. I may not be characterized by those things, but remnants still exist. These sins are not foreign to us. Another, for we ourselves were once led astray. It's the idea of being purposefully misled deceived and led astray by someone else. This is what goes on in the life of unbelievers, following a false guide to life and eternity, ever stumbling down the path after false ideals. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is who we were, foolish, disobedient, and deceived. We possessed no wisdom. We resisted God's wisdom, and we followed the lives of others who were equally deceived. It was the blind leading the blind. But that's not all. He says, For we ourselves were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. The term for, this term for slavery is sometimes used in a positive sense to, to describe our service to the Lord and even sometimes our service to one another in the, in the family of God. But in this verse, it's used in a negative way to speak of the unbeliever's bondage. Our former bondage as we lacked the desire and the ability to be or to do anything but that which is sinful. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to idols, enslaved to appetites. He uses this term cravings, sometimes sexually and immoral desires, but really any kind, any kind of deep craving in the heart. And unable to extricate ourselves. That is to say, if God would not have unshackled you, you would still be a slave of sin and enslaved to pleasures, not just cravings, but pleasures, sinful satisfactions, sinful self-indulgence. Before we were saved, these things were our master, and we were the servants. Another, he says, for we ourselves were once passing our days in malice and envy. The NASB, New American Standard, says spending our life meaning this was the warp and the woof of our lives as unbelievers, the fabric of our, lives, of our lives. This was the habit of our hearts, spending our lives in malice and envy, which are very ugly twins. Right? Malice speaks of inward evil, a viciousness of disposition. You might even say meanness. We were just mean. And then envy, not wanting what is better or best for others. John Stott says this, malice is wishing people evil while envy is resenting and coveting their good. And lastly, Paul says, for we ourselves were once hated by others and hating one another. We ourselves were loathsome and despicable and we despised those who stood in our way or displeased us hating anyone that threatened our freedom and self-will. It's the opposite of showing loving regard for others and putting them first. These are the things that we have to continually keep in view, continually keep in our minds in front of us. These are the things that we should we should expect to see in our world so that when these things happen when we're treated these ways we're not surprised right this is the the lord is telling us don't be surprised this is the way the world thinks and the way that the world lives so we should expect to see that but these are also things that characterized and marked and motivated our lives before we experienced the forgiving and transforming power of grace and if you find yourself impatient or disgusted, disgusted with or, or rude towards any unbeliever, you have forgotten that you were verse 3. And the cure is not to grit your teeth and to say, okay, I'll be nice to them. That's not the cure. The cure is to remember who you were without Christ. Because all they're doing is frustrating you and grieving you or saddening you or provoking you with a picture of you. But Paul doesn't leave us there with just this before Christ portrait. But starts in in at verse 4 with this beautiful long sentence that runs down through verse 7 about God's saving work in your life. So, if you struggle to show consideration for all men, it's not just because you have forgotten who you once were, but also what the Lord did for you. The way that God treated you. God is the Holy One. So, think about this. When sinners treat you poorly, big deal, right? (laughs) Big deal. You're just another sinner. There's nothing outrageous about that. There's nothing outrageous about a sinner being rude and unkind to another sinner. But when a sinner sins against a holy God, a holy creator, that is outrageous. And God didn't just display outrage. He displayed kindness. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, so this, the, the benevolence of God and God's love for sinful mankind, when that appeared, and, and this, appear, this appearing is, is the idea that, that this, this was something that came into view. It, all, it was always there, uh, but it came into view at the Incarnation and through the life of Christ, and the ministry of Christ, and ultimately the death of Christ on the cross. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, came into view through the person and the work of Christ, He, God, saved us. That is to say, Christianity is a religion of salvation. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. First Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He saved you. He rescued you. From what? He saved you from sin. Saved you from death. He saved you from God's wrath. From hell, eternal separation from God. And you may want to add this one to the list. You were saved from God. You were saved from God. Think about it. Where is the threat from for a sinner with no forgiveness? The threat is from God. Which is is what makes the gospel so sweet. The threatening judge is the one who provides the sacrifice That reverses my eternal destiny and satisfies his own anger. That's the gospel. And when that is clear to me, and when that is dominating my thinking, nobody has to tell me to be nice to irritating people. He saved us. And now Paul begins to clarify. Not because of works, he says, done by us in righteousness which Paul was compelled to say, I think, because of all the emphasis in this letter on good works. But you'll notice the order. It's always grace first and then good deeds, right? It's not good deeds and good works that lead to salvation. It's just the product of our salvation. It's the product of receiving God's grace and forgiveness. So the the measure of my salvation isn't righteous deeds because I didn't do any righteous deeds before I was saved. I mean, I mean, from man's perspective, I may have done what they would refer to as some good things, right? I may have done some generous things, some humanitarian things, some charitable things, but I did them for my own glory to make me feel better, right? I mean, these were just conscience appeasers. I was simply hedging my bets against judgment and eternity, thinking that I should do some good things, right, to make up for all those bad things. But it doesn't work that way. So what was the measure? And notice this phrase that the, in, in, in verse 5. He says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the measuring stick, by the yardstick of his own mercy. Mercy is that emotion aroused by the undeserved affliction of others. Which begs the question: Why should God be feeling mercy towards me? Especially when you realize that what we experience here on this earth—the pain, the, the, the con- any kind of consequences, the affliction, anything we experience like that—is less than what we really deserve. So it, it, it's counterintuitive. In every way. God didn't save you by the measuring stick of how many good deeds you did. He saved you by the measuring stick of incredible arousal of emotions for you in your afflicted state, all of which was brought on by your sin. In other words, your salvation is a consequence not of what is in your heart, but what is in God's heart. So, are you still having trouble showing consideration and humility and patience in your relationships with those who sin against you? If so, Paul says, you're not paying attention. According to his own mercy. That's the measuring stick. And then Paul goes on to describe how this was accomplished, the means of our salvation. By, he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says, listen, you were brought to life by the Holy Spirit. You were given a new beginning by the Holy Spirit. You didn't, just, you didn't free yourself from slavery. You didn't unshackle yourself. He set you free. He lavishly regenerated and renewed you, giving you a fresh start and a new quality of life. So that as those who are now righteous in God's sight, that's the term, just concept of justification. We've looked at that in depth in our study in Romans. Not as those who have gone from condemned to neutral, but from sinful and condemned to righteous before him all on the basis of the atoning work of Christ. So that we would go from slavery to sonship to equal inheritance status. To being joint heirs with Christ. These things are fixed and secure. Verse 8, he says, The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, another reminder about this emphasis on the importance of of adorning our life. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. This is a faithful word, Titus. Now, speak confidently about these things. Stress them. Proclaim them with certainty. Instruct the church of these things so that they will be intent upon it and thoughtful and doing good deeds so that this would be on the church's mind at all times. Paul had a deep concern about how the gospel would appear before the eyes of unbelievers. That's the whole purpose. Making God real to others adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The gospel is the jewel. The consistent and faithful Christian life is the setting in which the gospel jewel is meant to be displayed. Whatever station and situation that we are in, we are to be making the teaching from and about God attractive permeating every part of society with our witness, cultivating a heart for the lost. Do you struggle to treat unbelievers with kindness? Do you struggle to treat unbelievers with compassion? Do you struggle to have God's heart for the lost? If so, Paul says, remember the call your God-given duty, your God-given responsibility and obligation, but also remember who you were without the gospel. And remember how God treated you and his kindness that led you to repentance and be imitators of him. And for those who might be here this morning that, that have never trusted Christ, this, this very same message about sin and God's holiness and wrath and Christ and and freedom from sin and redemption, the very things, our sin and the the way in which God showed us kindness and mercy, that very message that should motivate us and that should stir us to be faithful in our evangelism, our prayer is that that same message would humble you for the first time that you would be humbled before your Creator, that your Creator would become your Savior. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we are going to to leave here and and go back out into some of the various relationships in the world uh, that this passage talks about. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for failing to keep in our minds your kindness, your mercy, our inheritance, the renewing and regenerating work of your Spirit. Father, forgive us for failing to remember what we were really like before you called us to yourself thinking, Lord, too much of ourselves and too little of you and therefore not interacting with the world in the way that you've called us to. Reveal, Lord, this sinful tendency and this form of spiritual amnesia to us. Help us to do what we should do to cultivate the kinds of motives that are meant to fuel and direct our evangelistic efforts And help us, Lord, to cultivate a loving and a growing Christ-like consideration for all men and all women at all times. We pray in the name of Christ and for the sake of his glory. Amen.